So if you care about a free and open world where countries are not engaged in raw military competition but are engaged in positive some forms of collaboration, India has a huge central role to play in shaping that world. Hello, and welcome to Global. I'm Travis Green, and today we are going to look at India. Gaining independence in 1947, India has established itself as a civilizational power that has the potential to define the way that democracy and governance is done on a massive scale. A federated system, many of India's states are larger than other countries around the world. With a population of 1.3 billion people, their most recent elections spanned a course of six weeks to ensure that citizens throughout the country were able to take advantage of the right to vote. The elections saw a resounding victory for the ruling BJP, with Narendra Modi winning a second term as prime minister. As India moves into a governance period with one party dominating throughout the country, what does this mean for how citizens will engage with their government? What challenges lie ahead for India to maintain its growth trajectory? And what can India teach the rest of the world in terms of building a healthy democracy? To look at these issues, I spoke with two distinguished guests. Milan Vaishnav is the director of the South Asia Program and senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also the host of the podcast Grand Tamasha, which breaks down the news in India politics around the most recent election and beyond. Be sure to check it out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We also spoke with Dr. Dan Twining, IRI's president and an expert on South Asia. To round this out, we had a conversation with Vivek Shivaram, IRI's program officer for South Asia. Before getting into Milan's interview, Vivek, can you just kind of give us a sense of what it is that we need to look for and look out for and keep, kind of keep in mind as we hear about where India is today? Sure. So I think the main thing to keep in mind here is, um, you know, that, that India's democratic development over the past 70 years has been you know, quite a remarkable story. Um, and is really, I mean, is not really highlighted as a success in the way that I think it should be. Um, you know, in 1947, when India gained independence, um, it was coming after, you know, out of 400 years of colonial rule. Um, partition had just happened, which, you know, saw 2 million people dead and 10 million people displaced, um, you know, with the division of India and Pakistan into what they are today. Um, you know, huge deficiencies in, you know, education, nutrition, poverty, like limited infrastructure. Um, people were, were, you know, unsure about whether this country will, will function, let alone kind of say it, stay a democracy. Um, and now, 70 years later, people, you know, are talking about India as the next great power. Um, and it's managed to, you know, make all of these achievements while continuing to stay a democracy. Um, so while there are obviously, you know, a number of flaws and issues that continue to, you know, to exist, as, as is the case with every democracy, um, yeah, I think that's something that we should keep in mind, that, that you know, the Indian story is, is a success story. And if you could boil it down to, like, one or two things, what is one of those one or two things that you think has contributed to the success? I guess the main thing that, that's remarkable about the success is that is how diverse India is as a country. It's, you know hundreds of, of different languages and ethnicities and castes and religions, and it's managed to develop a system that where all of those, those perspectives and voices can be heard, um, which is something that I think is, is very unique in the world and is something that is, that is contributed to its success. Mm-hmm. 
Next up, we spoke with Milan Vaishnav. Milan, thanks so much for joining us today. So we will be talking a little bit about Indian politics through the lens of its recent elections. Uh, we often hear that these elections were the largest in history, as India is the largest democracy. To provide some context for our listeners who may not be very familiar with India, could you talk about the elections from an administrative point of view? Like, what does it take for such a large election to run smoothly? So you're absolutely right. Uh, the 2019 Indian general elections were the largest democratic exercise in world history. Of course, the same could be said about every Indian general election until the next one takes place. About 900 million eligible voters uh, cast their ballots. Indian elections are not held on one day, but are held on multiple polling days, usually over a five to six week period. So in 2019, there were seven separate polling days between April 11th and May 19th. And a segment of the country will vote on each of those seven polling days. And this is partially due to security reasons, but it's also done for just logistical reasons. You know, uh, your listeners may be surprised to know that every single vote that's cast in an Indian uh, election is done electronically. So you see electronic voting machines that are used, which require a certain amount of administrative control. I think that's a a pretty remarkable feat. Uh, The second thing I would mention is that uh, under existing regulation, voters uh, are not supposed to travel more than two kilometers to any polling booth, which means that you have election commission officials who are going to glaciers, going across deserts, across oceans, uh, to far-flung islands, you know, all kinds of geographies to make sure that people can vote, which is a sort of funny thing when you think about it, because, you know, the debate in many Western democracies about voter restrictions, and in India, it's about how to make voting as easy as possible. And so, you know, there are literally polling boots set up for just one person or one family in parts of the country. My favorite story is in the state of Gujarat. There's a lion preserve and there's a voting booth set up for just one guy who lives amongst the lions in the Asiatic lion forest. Um, so it's it's a pretty remarkable enterprise when you think about it. That's Absolutely incredible. And just thinking about the amount of people that that would have to take to operate that, like, does that, is that operated through an electoral commission? Is that by the states at the federated level? Who's managing all of that? Yeah. So this is another interesting contrast with the United States, for example, where our elections tend to be very decentralized, where state, municipal, local authorities have a lot of sway. In India, there is a national centralized election commission that's based in New Delhi, and they have a constitutional status as an independent agency with some pretty extraordinary powers. Now, there are only about four or 500 people who work for the election commission. Uh, obviously, need many more people beyond that to actually conduct an election with 900 million voters. So right before elections, uh, the election commission will essentially deputize 11 to 12 million local government officials who will work on their behalf to conduct polls. So these are you know, school teachers, their police officers, their public he- public health workers, and so on and so forth, who come under the aegis of the election commission to carry out elections. Um, and the election commission has a hundred percent control over these people. So, for instance, if there's an allegation that there's a police officer on polling duty who is favoring the ruling party, the election commission can take that person. Uh, out of his position and dump him to the other part of the state or even to another state if they see fit. Their powers are so significant that even the judiciary cannot interfere with the election commission's conduct during an election. They can only question ex post what the election commission has done. Can you set the stage for who were the main players and what were some of the defining issues 
kind of being decided upon? Sure. So uh, the incumbent in this election was Prime Minister Narendra Modi of the BJP or the Bharatiya Janta Party. Mr. Modi came to power in 2014 on a, a really, truly historic mandate. His party won, I should say, the first single party majority uh, in India's parliament in three decades. Really, for the most of the past uh, quarter century, we have seen a series of hodgepodge coalition governments. There was no single party that was strong enough to command a parliamentary majority, and the BJP was able to do that in 2014. They defeated the then incumbent Indian National Congress or the Congress Party. The Congress Party really is the party which has dominated the Indian political scene since independence in 1947. All of the tallest leaders we know, Nehru, Gandhi, Patel, and so on, were members of the Congress Party. So they benefited off of this great reservoir of nationalist goodwill. Over time, however, started to see much greater political competition. And then uh, over, you know, 600 other political parties, which are regional in nature. So these tend to be parties which compete just in a single state, or sometimes even in a subset of a single state. And they're they mobilize on the basis of caste or ethnic or religious ties, or sometimes adherence to, you know, kind of state pride or kind of state, you know, subnationalism. And so the way to think about this is that in, in the last six or seven general elections, you have had the Congress and the BJP, the only two national parties, they get around 50% of the All India vote. And one out of every two votes actually goes to these regional parties. So they can be quite powerful. In 2019, however, uh, the BJP, uh, against, I think, the expectations of, of many observers, was able to replicate its single-party majority in parliament. Not only that, it actually did even better than it did in 2014, which I think is a sign of the popularity, not necessarily of the party per se, but of Prime Minister Modi, who remains head and shoulders above every other politician in India in, in terms of his favorabilities. So... Uh, the BJP will have yet another majority. Uh, the Congress Party is the single largest opposition party, but they only have around 53 seats out of a parliament of 543. The BJP has more than 300. Um, and the the balance goes to, to other regional parties. Why was it such a surprise to a certain extent that the BJP was able to dominate so heavily? And also, what's the significance that they have such a large majority? So I think the surprise is for multiple reasons. Number one is India is a, a democracy which actually has a political culture of anti-incumbency. So in the United States, we know that incumbents are heavily favored to win re-election. In India, you're statistically more likely to lose elections if you're the incumbent than you're the challenger. So Obviously, if you're a single party majority, you have the vast majority of incumbents, you're likely to be disadvantaged. That's the first. The second is that Modi campaigned in 2014 on the back of getting India's uh, economy back on track. So uh, generating rapid growth rates, rejuvenating the investment cycle, um, striking a blow against corruption. Uh, a large parts of the economic narrative he campaigned on really didn't come to pass in his first five years in office. That's not to say you can't point to very successes, but the kind of lofty promises he made about bringing in billions of dollars of investment, creating millions of jobs for kind of India's aspirational youth, you know, a lot of that actually it didn't happen. It didn't happen to the extent that he had promised. The third thing I think which gave people some pause is in 2014, a lot of the opposition took the BJP on one by one. 
as opposed to forming kind of opportunistic alliances. They kind of learned their lesson to some extent after five years and in some key battleground states said, look, even though we have been rivals, let's hang together in an effort to keep the BJP out of power. Because many parties, frankly, see the rising strength of the BJP as a kind of existential threat. But in spite of all of those obstacles, uh, they actually won a majority. And I think the significance is a couple of things. I mean, one, again, like I mentioned, I think Modi managed to presidentialize this election, which basically made it a referendum about him. And the opposition really didn't have anybody else who could go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with Modi in terms of his or her popularity. Nor did they really have a message that was kind of affirmative in nature other than let's keep the BJP out. I think the second is that, you know, a lot of people have commented on the fact that the BJP has some really significant structural advantages. They have probably the the best oiled political machine just in terms of their grassroots organization. They also have a huge financial advantage. So if you look at corporate contributions to, to take one, uh, the data show that the BJP has a 20 to 1 advantage over the Congress party, for instance. So I think that's a second big, big factor. And I think the third is that, you know, Modi represents a assertive, restless kind of outsider pro-Hindu stance that I think resonates, frankly, with, with a lot of Indians. You know, uh, the Congress party has been painted as a party that was kind of elite that was dynastic. The leader of the party always came from the Gandhi family. It was largely in English speaking. It was uh, at the risk of offending uh, minority groups, often downplayed their kind of Hindu bona fides. And this is a country that's 80% Hindu. And so I think, you know, Modi as a grassroots politician who didn't come from privilege, who comes from a relatively backward caste, who comes from a avowedly Hindu nationalist party, I think, frankly, that message resonated with, you know, a large part of the electorate. So while these elections might have been a validation of Modi, some might be concerned that such a large win by the BJP could start an overconcentration of political power. You know, what, what is your what is your read on that? Yeah, look, I mean, I think whenever you have one political party dominate the scene, this raises questions about the sufficiency of checks and balances. So India is a federal country, which is made up of 29 states. The BJP and its allies now control 17 of those 29. You know, prior to Modi coming to power, the BJP controlled just five of those states. So you could see the, the rising graph. The parliament is bicameral, so there's also an upper house. The BJP does not yet have a majority in the upper house, but assuming that it's able to maintain its popularity, it will likely get a majority with its allies in the upper house by the end of 2020, which means then it would control parliament uh, over half of India's states. So if you wanted to do things like amend the constitution or push through sweeping legislation, there would be many fewer veto players. You know, there's also this question about the strength and the resilience of Indian institutions. So things like the Election Commission, the judiciary, the media, civil society. And I think many people would point to, to several troubling instances where it looks like the independence of India's institutions has also been eroded. Um, so questions have been raised in this election about the independence and impartiality of the Election Commission. Uh, questions have been raised about the Supreme Court and the extent to which there's been executive interference in the dealings of the court. Um, questions have been raised about the Central Bank of India 
um, and you know, which is like our Federal Reserve, you know, governs monetary policy, but the the leader or the governor of the central bank is appointed by by the executive. So I think there are a number of things you could point to which suggests that you know, for people who care about democracy, that you know, we have to be very vigilant about checks and balances and find ways of of strengthening them in India. Shifting a little bit to look more within India and at the governance structure, you know, India, like we've mentioned, it's a highly federalized system and is really a continent unto itself. There are multiple states within India, like Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, West Bengal, that are significantly larger in terms of population than many countries around the world. How does the sheer size of these areas impact what democracy looks like? Like you mentioned a little bit about how some of the elections play out, how there are regional parties. You know, what are some of the other ways that just the size of these states within a country kind of impacts that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, you know, Uttar Pradesh is India's most populous state. It has around 230 million people. If it were a country, it'd be the fifth largest in the world, right? And that's one state in the Indian Union. Um, Just to give you another statistic that blows my mind, this election we saw 130 million first-time voters, which means these are people between the ages of 18 and 23 who had never voted in a national election before. Uh, That is roughly equivalent to the entirety of the U.S. electorate that voted in our last presidential election or, you know, the population of Mexico, population of Japan, and that's just the first-time voters, right? So, I mean, the size and the scale of of democracy in India is truly awe-inspiring, but it does also lead to governance issues. I'd say the first... And most important is, relative to its size and complexity, India has a very weak state. India actually has the smallest bureaucracy, if you were to look at civil servants per capita, of any G20 country. It has a relatively light footprint when it comes to the state. It has a relatively large footprint when it comes to regulations, when it comes to paperwork, when it comes to red tape. And so the balance is off, and I think often we confuse the two. But if you look at police officers, 25% of the police force around the country simply lies vacant. A third of the judiciary, and this is really stunning, simply exists on paper but not in practice. You know, India, as a result, has about 33 million pending cases winding its way throughout its court system, right? So a massive backlog that would take decades to overturn, uh, even if you operated at, at sort of full strength. Take any indicator, you know, tax officials, doctors, educators. And so I think that's one of the biggest problems I see when it comes to to, to, to governance. The second is that um, as a federal country, you know, the states are very powerful. And under the Constitution, they oversee most day-to-day aspects of governance. So when we talk about policy reform in India, we focus, I think, way too much on Delhi as opposed to what's happening in the state capitals. One of the things which has not existed for a large part of Indian independence, a better way for the states in the center to come together to help push for policy reform, to learn from one another. That's something that the Modi government has talked a lot about. They've talked about a new vision of kind of cooperative federalism. So I'd say that's a place where we've seen some limited progress, but where we could see a lot more. And then the, the last is that, you know, India is not just a federal country in terms of 29 states, but it's also a decentralized system of governance even below the state level, right? So there are village and town governments that are about 3 million elected positions in India, which go all the way down to the grassroots. And we've seen a pretty incomplete process of devolution and decentralization where the center has handed more money, more authorities, more funds to the states. 
but the states have not necessarily done the same to the most local levels of government. So they've kind of jealously protected their authorities. And so I think that's something where in terms of improving the quality of local governance, we really need to focus on strengthening, you know, that that bottom rung of village and town governments. Gotcha. And finally, um, in Asia, we see that there are two main models playing out, right? So we have China's highly centralized authoritarianism and India's federalized pluralism. What does the success of Indian democracy mean for the region in light of this kind of this tension? I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, um, if you go back and rewind the clock 70 years to India's founding, um, really no one thought it could succeed, right? I mean, you, you had unprecedented uh, diversity, uh, illiteracy, uh, sprawling geography. You know, no country had ever successfully instituted uh democracy and the universal franchise at such a low level of per capita income, and no country has been able to sustain it at such a low level of per capita income. And so India has been an outlier kind of on both fronts. So that alone, I think, tells us that India is an important, important model. I think um, there's so many examples to show that the way in which India's both constitutional design, its adoption of federalism, uh, its ability to manage uh, a diversity of castes, religions, kind of cultures, linguistic identities is a model for how other multi-ethnic uh, democracies uh, can flourish. You know, look at India's own neighborhood um, and look at, say, how Sri Lanka managed the, the imposition of one language on its population, which led to a decades, uh, multi-decades-long civil war, India decided to take a very different approach to allow for some degree of lin- linguistic autonomy at its states. You know, if you pull out a, a, a an Indian rupee, uh, a, a currency note, you will find that, you know, the Indian rupee is written out in 17 different languages, right, which is probably something that you don't see anywhere else in the world. But I think all of that is is great and gives a foundation, but I think going forward, we can't take those things for, for granted. I think that we have seen kind of majoritarian forces which have tried to impose a kind of Hindu-first uh, agenda, which I think does put at risk some of those forces of, of, of pluralism. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that, you know, one reason that um, India has been able to kind of live in relative peace related uh, relative to a lot a lot of other its you know neighbors has been because democracy has provided an outlet right a kind of safety valve um uh, for people to say we don't need to go outside of the democratic system because if we have grievances we can actually mobilize electorally and then do that through the political party system um and i think what you don't want to see is a situation where people feel like democracy is so closed off because of a a, a kind of religious majoritarianism or because of just dramatic inequalities um, that plague so many democracies that we feel like we don't really have a stake in what's happening. And so I think, you know, those are things that, you know, we all, I think, have to be very vigilant about and that India, first and foremost, kind of has to remember that, you know, the great idea of India is that there is no one idea, right? Is that a multiplicity of views and viewpoints kind of collide together and that the state and democracy provide a kind of accommodative roof for those battles to take place, but to do so, again, through the polling booth as opposed to um, some other non-democratic way. Fantastic. 
Milan, thanks so much. This was, this was a really great conversation. Yeah, thanks for Appreciate having me. Yeah. As we shift to our conversation with Dan, what are some of the things, Vivek, that we need to know about India on the global stage? So India on the global stage, it's emerging now as, as a great power in its own right, um, not just in the South Asia region, but, but kind of like on a global scale. You know, I think the the defining um, you know characteristic of the of the 21st century, the di- defining relationship, is going to be the U.S.-India relationship, um, and you're seeing interests between the United States and India, which had previously sort of been very separate. You're seeing them come together and aligning like almost naturally, as one of the world's largest democracies and one of the world's oldest democracies. You know, that's that's not just on national security and economics and and sort of those things, but just also on, on shared values. Um, and then one thing that I think um, we should highlight is that is that there's there's opportunities for the US and India to, to work together and, and think about how some of these new challenges and threats to, to democratic development and, and democracy that have kind of emerged, um, you know, there's an opportunity to think about how we can address and, and work together to solve them, particularly like we're seeing how te- technology has has changed how citizens and governments interact with each other. You're seeing a lot of threats that are emerging as a result of that with, with disinformation and fake news. These are challenges that are relevant both to the United States and India, and there's, there's opportunities to work together on that. Do you have any examples of ways that that collaboration has already started to take place? Yeah, so I can point to you know a cool project that IRI has done on cybersecurity, um, you know, looking at um, in partnership with our, our friends at NDI and the Belfer Center at Harvard University and Microsoft, we developed a playbook, which is a guidebook for political parties on how to improve and strengthen their cybersecurity capabilities. Um, and so we've we've adapted it to, to multiple um, international contexts, but we released an Indian version in advance of their general elections earlier this year in March. Um, which was very positively received by, by both of the major political parties. And, and there's definitely a lot of room to, to work and engage with them on that. Great. And uh, what do you see as maybe the next point of collaboration beyond cyber? I mean, I think that there's a, there's a lot that we can work with in terms of, you know, shared interests and along, um, you know, democratic values. Like it's, I think it's, it's pretty clear to us in America that there's a, there's a definite correlation between democratic development around the world and national security. And I think you're seeing that understanding emerge in India as well. Fantastic. Well, next up, we will hear from Dr. Dan Twining. Thanks so much, Vivek. Yeah, no problem. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. I love talking about India. So clearly, India is a regional and global power. Its location on the Indian Ocean and its access to so much of Asia and the Middle East gives it an incredibly strategic position. So to start us off, can you talk a bit about how the U.S.-India relationship has evolved over the years? So the U.S. and India were on the wrong sides of each other during the Cold War. Strangely enough, the world's biggest democracy, which is India, and its most powerful democracy, the United States, had quite a fraught relationship uh, from uh, really India's birth in 1947 through the end of the Cold War. There were some high points. India was the biggest recipient of American development assistance at various periods in the 50s and 60s. There were some great summits between our leaders. There were lots of strong people-to-people ties. But politics, kind of geopolitics, kept us a bit estranged. That all changed 
really after the Cold War and after some spats in the 90s when suddenly American and Indian leaders opened their eyes and realized that we needed a different kind of partnership, a strategic partnership, one that united the great democracies, one that was oriented around new challenges like terrorism and the rise of China and maritime security. Uh, and so the relationship really has developed more quickly over the last 15 or so years than any other major relationship the United States has. And I would posit that India really is going to be one of our top three relationships in the 21st century. This is going to be one of our most important partners in the world. That's partly because of India's scale. It's almost 1.4 billion people. It's going to surpass China in population size uh, within coming few years. That's because India is a vibrant democracy like America, uh, a federal system uh, with lots of different levels of political power, uh, a continuous election cycle that al always keeps us guessing and surprising. Uh, India is on an economic trajectory that looks kind of like China's 20 or 30 years ago, where it's really in that takeoff phase of quite rapid uh, growth that's really creating a middle-class society. And unlike China, Indian sovereignty is vested in its people. And so India really is a great bottom-up success story. In so many ways, China is a top-down story about state capitalism and kind of development guided by the Communist Party. I don't think that can last in China forever, but India's is really quite different. So I think it's a really exciting relationship, and Americans and Indians have so much we can do together uh, in the world. Swinging back a little bit to what you talked about, or when you referenced China a second ago, what are some of the ways that India and China kind of, how do they interact? So these are two civilization states, right? These aren't normal countries. India and China are both like continents to, unto themselves. They both have these ancient civilizational traditions, quite different from, say, the United States. And one thing that you've seen in this modern period is that they are bumping into each other. As they militarily modernize, economically take off, they increasingly bump into each other in the shared space around them. That includes in South Asia, that includes in Central and Southeast Asia, where they have essentially overlapping spheres of influence and interest. That also includes globally, where many Indians resent China's profile. And the Chinese approach now is that it's the second most important country in the world after the United States. You know, there's a pretty strong tendency among Chinese officials to invoke kind of a G2, you know, America and China are bigger and better than other countries in the international system. Uh, Indians resent that by and large. They see themselves benchmarking against China and India would like its moment in the sun. China is having its moment in the sun. It has global influence. It's projecting global power. China has an economy that's important to the entire world economy. India would like to be in that same position. Now, India has some work to do, particularly with economic reform, particularly with opening up land and labor markets, uh, opening further to foreign investment. But when you ask about how China and India interact, it's quite interesting because they innately see each other as competitors. There is a big imbalance of power between them, however. China is just 15 or 20 years ahead in terms of its own development of material power and capabilities. India is behind. The Indian system started economic reforms much later than the Chinese did. So increasingly, I mean, one way to think about the 21st century is to think about which of these countries is going to do better. China has this top-down, one-party system, central control, surveillance of society, 
an economy that was kind of forcibly industrialized by the state, right? India has kind of the opposite, a very open society, teeming pluralistic, sometimes a little chaotic, a very bottom-up form of politics where there aren't really elites in control in the way that there are in China, representative and accountable institutions, including regular elections that change governments. So when you think about how India and China interact, it's not just about how they relate in countries like Nepal, but it's also about this kind of contest of systems. Will democratic pluralism be really a stronger basis for development in the long term in the 21st century than kind of state capitalism and authoritarian control? And Americans should know what side we're on in that broader contest, which is that we believe in the democratic system. We believe in open markets. We believe in opportunity for all people. What are some of the regional and global challenges that India will have a key role in kind of confronting and playing into? You mentioned terrorism a little bit earlier. What are some of those other ones that you think that India is going to be pivotal to? One area that we haven't talked about is just development going forward in regions like Africa. What kind of development model where will poorer emerging economies adopt? Will they look to a Chinese model of more centralized control, a more hierarchical relationship between citizens and government, or will they look to a more Indian model? That will play out in Africa more than any other region because Africa is kind of the last region that really has quite a high growth potential ahead of it, just given that so many African societies remain so poor. So that's one. Two is the whole question of international public goods, things like freedom of the seas. The Chinese take a very different approach on these kinds of issues. You've seen in the last five years the way they've asserted military control over the South China Sea. The South China Sea carries 40% of global trade through its waters. And the American approach, the Western approach, the Indian approach has been that we have open sea lanes, just like we have an open and free internet. And so a big thing to watch with India will be does it continue to support that kind of global systemic openness, including in cyberspace? Indians are already the third biggest population on Facebook. They will ultimately, with China, be the world's biggest internet users, just given the sheer scale of their populations. So what kind of internet are Indians going to support? On one extreme, the Chinese model, which is the Great Firewall, government censorship, all forms of scrubbing of social media and the regular media to make sure that Chinese citizens don't have access to full information. Or the Western model, which is an open and free internet, kind of a wild west of information. Where will India come down in cyberspace? It's going to be a big question because a large number of global internet users, a large proportion, are going to be Indian. Uh, the global economy, I mean, this is not a pleasant time to talk about it because America and India are fighting a bit of a kind of a trade skirmish at the moment because India does have quite a closed, protected system that hasn't opened as fast just given its own uh, underdevelopment. But will India support a free and open global trading order of the kind that has existed for the last set of decades and which has produced literally unparalleled wealth. I mean, um, the world has never been as prosperous. You're looking out at a world here in the next five years where a majority of people are going to be middle class. That's never happened in human history. And that was made possible in part by this very enabling international environment that led to extraordinary levels of trade, commerce, investment, free flows of capital, free flows of information across national borders. That economic openness is part of what made China so economically successful. Will India be able to position itself as part of global supply chains, as part of global services delivery in ways that embed India 
in this very open global economy? Or will India try something that's more statist, more closed, maybe that's much more focused on the Indian market, where India never becomes the kind of trading superpower and financial superpower that China has become? So these are all big questions. And it's very interesting to look at the Indian case when you think about whatever your issue is, because India is at this pivot point where it could go in any number of directions. Do you think Modi is more likely to take it in one direction over another, or is that kind of to be determined, or? Really, China rose to riches on the back of a model that really no longer exists, which is kind of mass manufacturing for export using very repressed forms of labor. One thing that made China so competitive is that it didn't pay its workers very much, and it opened its borders so that all these global companies, Taiwanese, Japanese, Korean, American, European, could come and set up factories and produce mass manufacturers for export out of China. It doesn't feel like the world economy is at that stage anymore. You have things like 3D printing, manufacturing is reshoring in richer countries. It's not going offshore like it did for 30 years. What people want, at least in actually in most parts of the world now, are things, you know, great digital products that don't involve making a widget in a factory. They involve something different, which is knowledge. So how can India position itself in the economy of today, in the economy of 2025 and 2030? We know how China positioned itself in the economy of 1985 and 1990 and 2000. Indians are still very poor. So India has one of the world's biggest internal markets, right? I mean, if you're, a comp- if you're an Indian company, you potentially have a customer base just in your own country of over a billion people. Most of those people are not middle class. Most of those people are living on 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 bucks a year, which means they don't have the money to spend on the higher end goods. So can India continue to develop and grow its internal market? and maybe develop a different economic model, one more like the United States, as it came up in the 19th century, which was based much more on an expanding domestic market. That's a totally different model than, say, Japan or South Korea or Taiwan or China, which was to make the world their market and power their development on the back of global demand. So there are lots of questions. One thing for India is that they have a huge youth bulge. India is the youngest, has the youngest population of any major economy in the world. So the rich West is growing old. America's staying a little younger thanks to immigration. China is growing old very fast. They had a one-child policy for many years, which means that there is an imbalance in society. There are actually disproportionately more older people and disproportionately fewer younger people. So India actually already has the world's biggest workforce. Can India leverage that? Now, having the world's biggest workforce cuts both ways because you have to create jobs for all of those people. So about one million workers are coming online every month in India, one million new workers. So in theory, the Indian economy has to produce one million, about one million jobs a month or about 12 million jobs a year. The Indian economy is not doing that right now. Can India deliver on this demographic boom? This demographic boom could power it to huge levels of success because of this workforce. But can it educate those workers? Can it give them the skills and training to be effective workers? And can, it, can its economy, which is still enjoys a lot of state protection, can it create enough jobs to employ all of these people? India's story will be very different looking ahead 50 years, depending on how they do. What is something that the U.S. is underestimating in the potential that India has, you know, thinking back to kind of the strategic relationship between the two countries, what is something that you think we have not quite tapped into to really make that relationship work? 
so there are a couple things. One is that our economic relationship is still underdeveloped. We have a much more intense economic relationship with China, Japan, Taiwan, Europe, South America, almost every region than we do with India. That relationship is really underdeveloped. And that's partly because India's economy is, has been poor traditionally and has been protected. So harder for American companies to do business there. That's changing. Two, India actually is a lot like America. It's got a sense of exceptionalism. I mean, I would argue Indians take, obviously all people take great pride in their countries, but there is a sense of Indian exceptionalism that's not entirely dissimilar from the sense of American exceptionalism, that we're a special country, we're different. And so can Indian exceptionalism and American exceptionalism actually create a more productive relationship or does that actually just create a lot of frictions between us? Three, just the scale. You know, I think a lot of Americans and frankly a lot of people out in the world don't fully grasp the scale of India. So India has about 30 states and provinces. One of them, Uttar Pradesh, has more people in it than France, Germany, and Britain combined. That's one state out of 30 in India. The state of Bengal has more people in it than France. The state of Andhra Pradesh has more people in it than Spain. And these are just states in India. So Americans understand that. I mean, California is the fifth richest, the fifth largest economy in the world, only California. So we understand what this means. But when you think about the scale of these Indian states, really a lot of our focus in terms of people-to-people -people relations, in terms of business and economic ties, it's not going to run through the central government. It's not going to be something official between Washington and New Delhi. It's actually going to be about engaging with this state, this community, this governor, this set of leaders in the regions, not in the capital. And I think actually Americans can understand that because our country is like that. We have an ultra-federal system. India has an ultra-federal system. But people are so used to, when they look at Asia, thinking about like the Chinese model, where really the control is central. And what matters is getting the consent of the leadership in the capital. That's actually a lot less true in India, just like it's less true in Washington, D.C., Fourth is I think we underestimate, and this is final, I think we underestimate how much Indians and Americans can do together in terms of like clean energy solutions, in terms of scientific research, in terms of all these non-traditional areas, collaboration in really high-end digital technologies and platforms. India has a very open society. They have some of the best universities, technical colleges anywhere. So there is this very high-quality Indian elite in science, in tech, in medical. There is so much that we could do collaboratively to solve some of the big challenges that confront our people, like climate change, like pollution, like developing clean energy. Uh, India is still, I think, the world's biggest producer of dirty coal, right? So when we think about in kind of helping India minimize its own pollution. And this isn't about climate change, it's actually about the air Indians breathe. I think nine of the 10 most polluted cities in the world in terms of air quality are in India. So this isn't something for 100 years from now with sea level rise, this is something for today. There are so many areas where India could work with the United States and the West writ large to solve problems that confront our citizens. And so I think that's actually a huge frontier for us beyond military collaboration, economic ties, uh, etc. Great. And last question for you. What does the success of Indian democracy mean for democracy around the rest of the world? So I think it's going to be pivotal. Really, for 500 years, we've lived in a world that was oriented around first Europe and then America. 
And we're looking out at a period where I think America will still play a decisive and indispensable role. But increasingly, the ballast for democracy and security and stability will come from outside the traditional West. And India really is the most important country when we think about who outside the West can help anchor an international system that's grounded in principles of justice, freedom, equality, openness, dignity, right? You wouldn't say those things about China today. I mean, the Chinese official Communist Party vision is very different in terms of the world and what organizes it. So if you care about a free and open world where countries are not engaged in raw military competition, but are engaged in positive some forms of collaboration, India has a huge central role to play in shaping that world. It has a huge role to play in kind of projecting stability and security and peace, not in an old-fashioned way, but I think in quite a modern way, that India's success will be a great example to many other developing countries, including in Asia, including in Africa, but also that India increasingly will play a bigger role in its region and beyond its region in projecting peace, security, stability. Now, that's controversial in India because many Indians are just getting used to the idea of what it means to really be a great power. But really what it means to be a great power is to realize that you have an interest in the stability of the whole system, not just of your own country. And for India to continue to develop and really become the rich, successful society that it should be and will be, it's going to need to shape the international system a little more, including by infusing it with values of democracy and openness. So I think that's the path ahead. Uh, it's not a given, but that creates so many opportunities for India to work with so many countries, including the United States. As always, we really appreciate our guests taking the time to speak with us. Milan gave us a great overview of the importance of these elections and what we need to keep in mind as we watch India going forward. And Dan did an excellent job placing India in the global context, as well as the importance of the relationship between the United States and India. A couple weeks ago, we talked about protest movements and gave a summary of two that we have been watching very closely, currently happening in Algeria and Sudan. Our next episode is going to look at these dynamics more closely in Algeria, putting the current moment in its historical context and unpacking what to expect for the future. Until next time, I'm Travis Green, and thanks for listening to Global.